It was by no means preordained, but perhaps it was inevitable. Born in 1943, the son of a Marine in World War II in a family of Marines and spending his early childhood and formative years in France, put James L. Jones on the path to joining the United States Marine Corps, where he spent a distinguished four-decade career, retiring as a decorated four-star general. Hello, everyone. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. It's a real honor to speak with my guest today, General James Jones, who during his military career served as Commandant of the Marine Corps, Commander United States European Command, and Supreme Allied Commander Europe. After retiring from the Marine Corps in 2007, Jones served as Chairman of the Congressional Independent Commission on the Security Forces of Iraq and later as Special Envoy for Middle East Security. President Barack Obama then invited Jones to serve as his National Security Advisor. Jones now leads a global strategic advisory firm, Jones Group International, based here in the Washington, D.C. area. General Jones, welcome to When It Mattered. Petra, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Was there a pivotal moment or period in your life that kind of put you on the path to joining the military? I know I said it wasn't preordained, but it was perhaps inevitable. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I do, in retrospect, um, although I, I didn't... Uh, I didn't come to that conclusion until until later, but as I look back on my life in my formative years, young years in post-war France, 1946, my father's uh, and, and his brother's contribution in World War II in the Pacific, and growing up overseas uh, during the, the height of the Cold War and, and being uh, impressed by you know, what the American military had achieved in both Europe and, uh, and, and the Far East. Um, I think all of those things have really served at a very young age to form in my mind that service to uh, one's nation is something that, that counts and is important. And I think that really molded me uh, to eventually do what I wound up doing, even though I didn't know I was being pushed that way. Yeah, and you moved to France with your parents when you were, I think, two and a half years old, and, and you stayed there, I guess, through your high school years. What was that like, too? I mean, a lot of us read about, you know, uh, World War II and World War II history, but you were in the middle of it. You were in Normandy, and, 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 and just describe what that was like. Well, it um, so my father worked for an American company out of Chicago. It no longer exists, but it was a very large a uh, farm machinery company called International Harvester. And um, immediately after the war was over, uh, International Harvester sent my father and mother and me over to France to help start uh, a company over there, a branch of International Harvester. And they did that all over Europe, actually, in many, many countries and also in North Africa. And, and uh, so being a, an American family, you know, trans, transported from the Midwest of the United States into uh, one, one of the European capitals, not speaking any French. My parents spoke no French whatsoever when they arrived there. For me, it was easy because young people pick up uh, languages very quickly. So I was very quickly quite bilingual and I went to French schools, I went to NATO schools, I went to the American School of Paris and subsequently Georgetown University School of Foreign Service because I honestly thought that I would eventually have a career in the Foreign Service uh, and, and, and replicate what uh, many families were doing all over the world. 
after coming back from Europe and, and rediscovering uh, the United States, uh, uh, I joined the Marine Corps in uh, was commissioned in 1967 and uh, wound up staying for 40 years. But the, the, post, uh, the post-war experience was something that, that really struck me uh, as, as a young person. Uh, my parents used to talk about this place called the uh, Iron Curtain. And in my mind, there was, there was a place somewhere uh, where there was a big Iron Curtain and behind the, the Iron Curtain was the enemy, uh, the Russian soldier, so to speak. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it, it was an interesting time because in those days, in the, in the 50s, you know, France was flirting with communism quite seriously. A lot of people were saying, uh, the American uh, dream is in decline. The American political system is in decline, and communism would uh, eventually take over. Uh, I lived through the the, the space race uh, between the Russians and the and the U.S. in the launching of Sputnik, the first uh, satellite to orbit the Earth, and uh, that had an impact on me. Uh, quite, uh, you know. Uh, I guess I would. I guess you would say I was very competitive at a young age and very nationalistic, very patriotic, and uh, very proud of, of being a young American, even though I hadn't lived in the U.S. except for long enough to to be born there and and to live there for a couple of years before being transported over to Europe. So all of those things uh, came, you know, came to my mind together and uh, really directed me in, in, the, in the path that I eventually followed. When we were speaking earlier, you said that you actually got into some scuffles with the kids in school over this, the, the sort of growing sense of communism and, and, and the kids sort of challenging American uh, superiority. Yeah, I learned a little bit about prejudice. Uh, you know, I, I used to say that, you know, France has never, never forgiven us for the liberation, uh, which is uh, not quite fair, but you know, in the in my early uh, younger days in the in the primary or secondary schools, um, I was the only American in the school, I, and I was the only one with a different name, and I was the only one who wore different clothes, like um, American blue jeans and things like that, which you could not buy in in post-war France, and and frankly, everybody wanted so. Um, I, I, I gained an appreciation of what, what it was like to be different, uh, to be considered different, even though I was perfectly bilingual and I spoke as good of French as any, any of my, uh, my friends. But, um, you know, when they go home and talk to their parents about, you know, there's an American kid in our, in our school, you know, some, sometimes, uh, you know, some of the post-war uh, attitudes uh, towards France, which is hard to understand, I mean, towards the United States, exhibited in France was uh, somewhat anti-American. Uh, to be fair, we had a huge military presence. NATO was in France. The US European Command was in France. We had air bases. We have you know, a very, very heavy presence uh, all the way up, up until uh, Charles de Gaulle asked us to leave in 1965, not just the US, but everybody. And uh, uh, so, you know, we, uh, we had a couple of instances where our family car was painted with white paint that said, U.S. go home. And so there was, there was a lot of anti-American feeling. 
But uh, at the end of the day, you go back to France today, you can go up to Normandy and you'll find uh, a, a degree of warmth and welcome that uh, shows that the people up along those very famous beaches have not forgotten what happened. You stayed in France through high school and you had a very scary experience uh, before you returned home, uh, a near-death experience. Could you describe that? Well, I had a motorcycle accident in my, soft, uh, my junior year in high school, and uh, it, it was something that uh, was you know, my fault entirely. I was going too fast and I uh, was taking a friend to a train station, and I collided with a light pickup truck, and my friend sailed over, over my head and landed with very little damage. I, I uh, stayed on the motorcycle, crashed into a wall, and head first and uh, wound up in the hospital for several weeks. You know, there are a lot of stories about people who've had near-death experiences, not much different, except that I remember a, a seemingly going down a lighted corridor towards a, a very powerful light and, uh, and then all of a sudden stopping and then going in reverse, so to speak. And then I woke up, uh, crumpled on the sidewalk, uh, bleeding from my head and uh, had a pretty serious knee damage. And uh, some of my friends who were driving home from school stopped and took me to the American hospital in Paris where I spent a couple of weeks recovering. Wow, that must have had quite, a, quite an impact on, on you. It did, um, it, it did, it, it, it taught me to put a helmet on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, so, so you come from a really long line of Marines. Could you tell us a little bit about that family lineage of Marines? It's pretty impressive. Well, thank you. Uh, my, uh, so my, my father and his younger brother became Marines. My, my, my uncle was first, at, and I believe he joined in 1938. And uh, my father actually had an army commission. And my as they tell the story, or as they told the story over the years, my my uncle convinced my father to seek an inter-service transfer and become a Marine, and he did. And uh, both of them served in the Pacific at the same time. And uh, my father was um, a reconnaissance Marine. He, he landed on Japanese-held islands months before any invasion uh, where security was lax, but they would surface uh, uh, on a submarine, inflate rubber boats, paddle ashore, hide the boats, and uh, conduct reconnaissance of possible landing beaches, enemy troop strength and the like, and then paddle back out in the middle of the night and hope the submarine hadn't been sunk in the meantime. My uncle was a uh, battalion commander in some of the famous battles on Guadalcanal, Okinawa and the like. But he was the youngest battalion commander in the Marine Corps at the age of 27, um, mainly because most of the other more senior officers had been killed or wounded, and he was one of the ones that was left. My, my father left the Marine Corps in 1945, but never really left the Marine Corps. He was always very proud of being a Marine and subsequently promoted all the way to colonel before he retired. My uncle uh, was an active duty Marine for almost 40 years and retired as a uh, Lieutenant General. Uh, 
in the ni early 1970s. And, and you said something astonishing to me that you, there's been a Marine in your family on active duty every day since uh, 1938? Yeah, that's correct. So all the way through the, through the family, five, five of us were on active duty during the Vietnam War, including my uncle, who was a general at the time. But uh, I guess I was the next uh, most senior guy. I was a, a second lieutenant. And then I had uh, my uh, two cousins that, that served as infantry officers in, in Vietnam. And my brother was a Marine. And uh, my, one of my sons had two tours in Iraq as a, as a Marine infantry officer, which was really, I think, uh, unusual is that none of us ever went to a military school. Uh, most of uh, my family uh, attended uh, Kansas University, just as a matter of kind of tradition, I guess. And I was one of the exceptions have, uh, going to Georgetown. But none of us ever, uh, all of us were volunteers and kind of what we would say walk-ons uh, who volunteered to serve. And uh, uh, so my son is a Lieutenant Colonel in the reserves right now. and. Uh, uh, one of my cousins uh, had a 20-year career as well. So we, we feel pretty well represented in, in Marine Corps history books. That's, that's, that's for sure. Um, and, but yet, you thought you might end up in the diplomatic corps. You didn't think of uh, the, the military as your first option, right? That's correct. Um, I mean, I, I, I went to the School of Foreign Service because it, it seemed like a logical fit. And frankly, I took advanced French so I could get an easy A. <laughs> <laughs> you were at a, at a competitive advantage there, I would say, by a degree. I, I took advantage of it too, I must say. Um, <laughs> but um, no, I, you know, I thought I, I really thought that's where I would wind up, that I would uh, join the U.S. Foreign Service, and, uh, and that's what I would do. Um, but I, I was always going to join the Marine Corps and. and uh, I did that, got a reserve commission for three years, in starting in 1967. Would have been released from active duty in 1970, except that uh, I decided I, I wasn't completely sure that I wanted to leave active duty because I really loved what I was doing. I, I, I loved the Marines. I loved the, the culture. I loved the discipline. I loved the competitiveness and the, the challenges that every day brought. You know, my wife and I talked about it and I said, well, let's just stick around a little bit longer and see what happens. And so the next uh, benchmark was at the 20 year level. And I'd actually thought about retiring because for the first time I was gonna have a staff job, which I'd never really wanted. And, and um, but anyway, I, uh, we decided to stay on beyond 20 and then we hit 30 and 40 and, and 40 years in one month and uh, I retired. Yes, but by then you had served in, in many, many roles, right? You were, uh, let's see, you were the commandant of, uh, of uh, the Marine Corps. You were, you were the aide-de-camp aide to the commandant of the Marine Corps, right? That was at the 20-year mark. Right. And then, and then you, you were commandant of the Marine Corps and then promoted to general and you served as commandant till 2003. Right. And then you became Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, and you were, in fact, the first Marine to serve in that role. That must have been uh, quite a, a mark of pride. Yes, you know, that was, uh, 
that was probably the easiest decision that I ever made. And, and it's the one that I, 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 I did not expect. Um, the Secretary of Defense uh, called me into his office and said, hey, we're looking for a replacement for um, General Ralston, who, who was the uh, incumbent uh, SACUR, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. And uh, so he asked me for my opinions. So I gave him a couple of names of people I thought would be good. Uh, mine wasn't one of them. And, uh, and he considered what I was saying. And he said, well, I think you should. I think you should consider going. And I was really stunned. And uh, uh, I never, I, I always thought that, you know, that, that billet was reserved for mostly army officers. And there had been uh, two Air Force generals, but there'd never been a, an admiral or a Marine general in that billet. So I discussed it with my wife and she could see she could see the light in my eyes and the enthusiasm. And she said, okay, four more years or whatever. <laughs> She's like, he's never leaving. <laughs> she said, when is this going to end? <laughs> but uh, it, was a great, it was a great way to, uh, to finish up a career. And um, one of the, maybe one of the ironic twists of life is that my father's last job was as the president of International Harvester in Belgium for the last 10 years of his European career. It was 27 year, 27 year stand in Europe. So the last 10 were in Belgium. And his office, his last office and he went before he retired was uh, about a 30 minute drive from my office as, uh, at, uh, at the uh, NATO headquarters. That is amazing. What a, what a uh, amazing journey back to where you started and to where, where he ended his career. Full circle. Yes, full circle. Um, when you were uh, when you were Supreme Allied Commander Europe. By the way, I love that title so much. I told my kids, you know, I asked them, "Can you call me Supreme Allied Commander Mom?" I just really like the sound of that, but they, they yeah. didn't want to do that. But uh, it's just uh, to talk a little bit about what that role entailed. Among other things, you led Allied Command operations, you know, of NATO military forces in Europe, right? So what were, what, were, what were some of the things you did as Supreme Allied Commander in terms of your key accomplishments with NATO in, in particular? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, the things that I, that I recall the most was that when I got there in 2000, January of 2003, we had 19 countries in NATO. Uh, when I left there in, in 2000, in, January of 2007, uh, we had 26. And going through the accession of seven countries, uh, mostly former Warsaw Pact countries, uh, including the Baltic states, uh, it was a phenomenal historical moment that, you know, really for the first time convinced me that, you know, really perhaps the Cold War is over. Perhaps, you know, this, uh, the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the decline of the Soviet Union would usher in a period of peace in Europe that, uh, as we like to say, uh, peaceful Europe, whole and free. Um, and in fact, we had uh, in NATO, we had two councils that were very interesting in light of what's going on right now. One was the NATO-Russia Council and the other one was the NATO-Ukraine Council. Interesting. And, um, and they regularly met. Um, and uh, 
and the Russians were active participants uh, in, in those meetings. Um, NATO obviously was expanding uh, into the former Warsaw Pact countries, which was something Vladimir Putin uh, to this day uh, holds against uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And then I'd say the second thing that was stands out in my mind most easily was shortly after I arrived at NATO, uh, it was customary for the NATO ambassadors to host a welcome lunch for the new, whoever the new SAC here was. And so the British ambassador held this welcoming lunch for me. And I studied up on everything I could about NATO and what it had done and you know what we might be thinking about uh, NATO response force was something that everybody was excited about. And so I got to the lunch and uh, the British ambassador said, as the host, he said, I get to ask you the first question. And, and my, he said, my question is, uh, General Howard, how do you plan on getting the NATO's military into Afghanistan? And I thought it was a joke. I mean, I, 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 I never dreamed that that was even a remote possibility. But uh, I could tell from the, for the rest of the lunch that that's all, that's all they wanted to talk <laughs> about. And, uh, and so, and so it, it became uh, task number one. And, and so from 2003 to 2004, we developed uh, NATO's engagement strategy for uh, making a contribution in, in Afghanistan. And in uh, about this time in 2004 at the Munich Security Conference, I briefed the plan to all of the NATO defense ministers. They approved it. And uh, so I would say that in addition to the expansion of by seven countries, but uh, actually developing the plan for the first NATO out of area operation was probably the second thing that I remember the most. And after you retired in 2007, President-elect uh, Obama selected you as his national security advisor, and you had a, another opportunity to really uh, think about the Soviet Union in a different way, to really get up close and personal in watching uh, President Obama's interactions with Vladimir Putin. Uh, what did you learn from that, uh, those interactions about Putin, and, and, and how does that inform what you see happening now today in, in the Ukraine? What was, what was most interesting about the, uh, the first two years that I spent with uh, in the Obama administration was probably, in fact, the Russian relationship. Um, in those days, uh, Vladimir Putin was the prime minister and President Medvedev was the, uh, the president. So the, the primary interlocutor with the American president was President Medvedev, not, not the prime minister. Um, and we took a, a trip over to Moscow. And uh, in addition to meeting with the, the, uh, the president, we had a breakfast meeting with uh, the prime minister, Vladimir Putin, in which he uh, shared with us his, his belief that um, you know, the worst thing that happened on the face of the, of the planet uh, in the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, the blame for that uh, goes to NATO. 
and he also shared with us that he believes that uh, there was a, an agreement, which I've, nobody can ever find any evidence that this was so, but he believes that there was an agreement that NATO would not expand into the former Warsaw Pact countries. And so the fact that we did, and, and the fact that one of the central questions I'm sure that's on his mind is uh, Ukraine and NATO, what, what, that, what, what does the future hold there, um, is, is really one of the big problems. And the last point he made was he also felt that the United States uh, did not help Russia in its hour of need when they were in economic uh, distress, which I, I don't think is true. I think the United States did an awful lot uh, to help uh, help Russia during its hour, its time of need. But, but he holds that uh, very, very uh, much in his mind. And I believe it, it colors everything he's doing today. So given your knowledge of Putin and how he thinks and, and your leadership in NATO, what do you think is, I know we can't read the crystal ball here, but as of this taping, what do you think is likely to happen and how will NATO emerge from all of this, weak or strong? I think, I think there's, a, there's a possibility that the worst scenario that Vladimir Putin can imagine uh, could emerge from this, and that is that NATO would be stronger. This evening, probably the largest delegation of American uh, politicians elected and appointed uh, was heading towards the Munich Security Conference. I think 40 members of Congress are attending. Um, they're going to be disappointed, I think, because the Russians are not, not attending the conference for the first time in, in quite a while. Um, but but it goes to show you that, uh, you know, after some years of neglect, uh, I think of neglect to our leadership responsibilities in the Alliance, uh, in this moment of crisis, the United States has re-engaged and is re-engaging with our friends and allies um, and uh, showing, uh, you know, showing some, some leadership that uh, has been missing, quite frankly, um, and so I think, I think it's, it's possible that one of the scenarios that will come out of this is that NATO will, will be stronger and it'll, it'll be stronger if the United States continues to exert the kind of leadership that our friends and allies expect. Do you anticipate a diplomatic resolution? I personally think that uh, Mr. Putin should be looking for a graceful way out. I, I think it would be a catastrophic mistake uh, for him and for his country to invade uh, Ukraine. Um, so uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but, you know, I, I am always reminded by his, his lecture at breakfast in Moscow about the three or four things that uh, he believes uh, with regard to NATO and with regard to uh, NATO's expansion into the former Warsaw Pact countries is something that uh, he has never accepted, and uh, I don't think will ever will ever accept. So it's it's unfortunate because you know during the President Medvedev's uh, uh, tour in office, uh, we signed we we worked on and signed a START treaty, 
we agreed on Iran in many respects in terms of the nuclear program. We shared information about what we knew about the Iranian program and they shared information back. We became, uh, you know, colleagues. Uh, and and there, was, there was some enthusiasm about the fact that, you know, that just, just maybe Russia saw itself as a Euro-Atlantic country as opposed to a standalone uh, hostile neighbor. But unfortunately, when President Putin returned uh, to the presidency, he took Russia down a, a completely different path, which is uh, regrettable. I want to segue a little bit. Uh, you know, we've talked a bit, uh, quite a bit about how you and your family uh, sort of epitomize patriotism, duty to your country, duty to the Constitution. What were your thoughts watching uh, the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, and the military's seemingly slow response and the fact that some current and uh, numerous former members of the military were involved in the insurrection? I think that's a very re regrettable. I mean, I, my, uh, my father and my uncle uh, repeatedly educated me on the unique role that the American military plays and the unique oath of office that we all take uh, you know, prior to joining uh, the military, and that is to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Um, certainly the president as commander in chief is, is you know, the, the number one person in the chain of command. But the oath of office is to a document. And, uh, and I think we should take that very seriously. And uh, I, am, I, I am not on the side that finds anything admirable about men or women in uniform who become politically oriented or motivated uh, while wearing the uniform. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not terribly proud of those people who participated in uh, the demonstration on, on January 6th. I think, you know, we have millions of people who wear the uniform and, and wear it proudly and, and, and with great honor and great dignity. And they understand exactly what they're doing. Um, so, so a significantly small percentage, unfortunately, gets the attention. Uh, but I think people should remember that by and large, the uh, American military and the people who serve in uniform uh, do so with great pride and great care and, and great respect for the, the Constitution. Do you have any concerns at all about sort of the future of our democracy and the political independence of the military, given what happened and if, if you know, and the rise of right-wing militia groups and white nationalism and if if Donald Trump were to become president again and attempt something similar with the help of the large numbers of Republican politicians who've managed to convince themselves that the last election was stolen, uh, do you fear at all or are you are you assured that we're going to be okay? Every decade of my adult life, uh, the decline and demise of the United States is a, has been predicted for one reason or the other. You know, whether it was post-war uh, feelings of uh, you know the rise of inevitable rise of communism, uh, whether it was uh, during the Vietnam War, which was 
you know, a war that's seemingly without end or objective, or every decade, somebody, somebody, somewhere, people start beating on the drum saying the United States is in decline. My definition of, of, of decline and when people should really start thinking hard about what's going on around us is when a country can no longer bring itself to do the things that it must do and that its citizens know we must do, but find ourselves unable to do that, then that is probably that probably is an indication that that nation is is in decline. One of the things that has colored my adult life is, frankly, uh, the lessons of history, where every great civilization, uh, every great power, every great uh, moment in history, where there's been a a uh, uh, a dominant uh, force on the on the global playing field. Every every one of those has a beginning and they have an end, and the end comes one of two ways: either through external conquest or internal collapse. And most of the time, it's internal collapse, and its internal collapse comes as a result of the, the, that particular entity no longer being able to do the things that it needs to do or to transform itself to meet the new. Uh, requirements of the environment, uh, political and otherwise. And, and so, you know, change is something that uh, great nations have to adapt to, and they have to recognize it. They have to recognize when they're heading down the wrong trail and make those changes. And right now, I think we're in a, a, a very awkward uh, moment where just the evidence of the lack of civility, political discourse, the rise of social medias that attack people without any evidence, uh, the whole personalization of the political process to where, you know, one party disagrees with the other one simply because they said something. Uh, and, and, and this, this knee-jerk reaction to take the opposite view of what anybody says that you don't agree with. This is not, this is not healthy. I do believe we'll come out of it. I'm not sure when that will happen, but I know that if we're going to continue to be a great nation, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, so to speak, and to continue to inspire other countries around the world to who whose citizens don't don't enjoy a tenth of the freedom that we take for granted, um, then I think you know we could be we could be in a different in a different situation, and I know that. I'm personally convinced that you know countries like Russia and China and Iran are not going to change. They're not going to change uh, their ways. They're not going to change their goals and aspirations. And they are bent on making sure that America is in decline, stays in decline, and that they, uh, in some way, replace us as the the next most important force on the, uh, on, on, the, on the face of the planet. Looking back on your distinguished military career, General, is there one moment that you are proudest of, something that you reflect on? Yeah, I mean, during my career, um, you know, one of the things that I was motivated by was the, the high standards of excellence that the Marine Corps demanded uh, the, and, and uh, 
and and stimulated healthy competition among you know its members and so on and so forth. Uh, and so I was I was a pretty competitive guy. I thought you know in terms of you know the the jobs I had and and, and kind of how I I saw uh, my career developing. And uh, I got to the 20 year mark as a Lieutenant Colonel, as a battalion commander out at Camp Pendleton in California. And, and I had this wonderful command and, uh, and there were other, many other battalions out there, but I, I really didn't have much connection with the, other, the others of my peer group who were different regiments, uh, different, uh, different organizations. And um, so I started, I started really believing that, you know, there, there are some things that, that I was doing that I was doing well. There were some things that we were doing that we weren't doing well. And I started going around talking to my peer group and, and saying, hey, I noticed you guys are doing really well in, in your, your drug program. You know, can you, what, what, to what do you attribute your success? And, you know, there was a there was a little bit shocking to people that people were going around asking, okay, you know, uh, how what can I learn from you? And it was around that time I just decided, you know, I've I've been maybe I've been too focused on worrying about the next promotion or the next uh, next stage in, in in the career, and I decided that I was no longer going to worry about the next promotion or the next job. I was just going to enjoy the moment. Um, and let the chips fall where they may. And uh, so for the next 20 years, I never, I never really thought about the next job. Uh, they just happened. And uh, I remember a, a general in my younger days who used to counsel us and say, you know, if you just concentrate on blooming where you're planted, you'll be fine. If you don't worry about anything else, just do the best you can wherever you are, and the rest will take care of itself. And I, I learned that that was probably pretty good advice. Great advice, I would say, yeah. Um, so I, this is a bit of an, uh, an aside, but I think there's an interesting story here. I saw in an article that you were responsible for convincing country music artist Toby Keith to record, uh, I guess it's his popular concert hit, uh, courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. Yeah. <laughs> How did that come about? So um, I was commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, and I got a call from a, a reserve colonel who was then uh, employed by the Joseph Coors Brewing Company. Um, and uh, he said, uh, and he, he called me up and he said, we have a young artist named Toby Keith and another uh, duo named Brooks and Dunn uh, under contract with Coors for a year. And um, how would you like to have a, a concert uh, in Washington uh, with these entertainers? And you can just, uh, you know, we do it at Constitution Hall and uh, you can fill it with, you can fill it with Marines, you know, free concert. And I said, oh, nothing wrong with that. And uh, so we, the plan uh, materialized and the, the, the day came and actually I called the chief of naval operations and we, we actually made it a mixed audience of sailors and Marines. And uh, so I met Brooks and Dunn and, and Toby Keith at a, at a little reception before the concert. 
And Toby Keith pulled me aside and said, I've got this um, song that I've been working on that I haven't released yet. And it's a little edgy, but it's a patriotic song. And I wrote it uh, in honor of my dad. You think it would be okay if I tried it out? I said, Toby, you could go out there and sing Yankee Doodle Dandy and they'd be very happy. You know, this, this is the friendliest audience you'll ever have. And so he did, and, and he sang courtesy of the wet, red, white, and blue. And it was received overwhelmingly with, uh, you know, this hysterical applause. And, and so he recorded it and released it, and it went to uh, rocket ship up to number one spot in the country music charts. There you have it. There's another great accomplishment, right? <laughs> I mean, Toby, Toby Keith is, is a, an exceptional friend. And we became you, friends. You stayed in touch. Yeah, we stayed in touch. We stay in touch today. I've got a couple of his guitars in my office, and uh, we've we've had we've we've toured uh, together uh, in Africa and uh, different places where we've linked up. He's he's a great he's a great American. He's a great friend. Uh, I'm very proud to I'm very proud to know him. You play the guitar. Uh, you know, he he gave me a couple of guitars, and I said I'm going to learn how to play these things, but. You know, that's still a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> you currently are a very busy with uh, your own global strategic advisory firm, Jones Group International, and probably one reason why you haven't really learned to play the guitar. What are your key areas of focus? What's on your mind these days in your inbox that kind of keeps you up at night? Um, well, I, um, I think being 78 years old keeps me up at night. <laughs> So I just hope I'm going to wake up in the morning. <laughs> when I left government uh, in 2010, I decided to try my hand at uh, entrepreneurship. And so I started a company. And, uh, and the intent of the company was to do good things, but do good things that made a difference, that could make a difference, that could enhance uh, the, uh, the value uh, and the esteem in which our country is held. Um, straight consulting and over the last decade it's been it's evolved into consulting but also we actually do we do things we we're very involved in cybersecurity technologies um, we we are helping our friends and allies in several countries uh, in the middle east and also in the, in europe and nato in particular NATO countries, um, and it's really stimulating, fascinating work, and uh, hopefully uh, we're doing some good um, being an American company, but trying to contribute to the, the, the freedom and, and the, uh, the, the, friend, the friendships and the alliances that we have around the world, and, and to show that the United States is a reliable partner uh, through the private sector. And... Uh, we do consult with uh, our government. I, my, my policy is I don't do anything that's not consistent with our foreign policy. And uh, so if it's helpful and we can do it, something to be helpful, uh, we'll try our best to do it and do it very well. General Jones, in closing, looking back at your younger self, that child growing up in France, visiting Normandy, that cemetery at Omaha Beach, the boy who scuffled with his fellow French students over communism, the combat veteran who stayed 40 years in the military, never intending to, uh, and carrying your Marine lineage forward all the way over to your son and 
that national security advisor who watched Vladimir Putin in action. What would you say, looking back on this incredible career you've had, and to your younger self about the journey that you've been on? Well, I'd, I'd say that, um, and, and I do think about this, I, I, I'd say I've been very fortunate. Uh, I was very fortunate to be raised by a uh, wonderful uh, set of parents and a, fam and a wider uh, family that was able to participate in, in one of the most dramatic moments in history, um, World War II, uh, and, and all of the events uh, thereafter, and to have been able to participate in many of those events has been something that uh, you know I feel I feel deeply respectful for the opportunity and and all I can do is hope that uh, somewhere along the line that we uh, were able to do some good uh, for people around the world in various parts of the world and in the the days I have left I am very interested in making sure or trying to help in any way possible that, that the, uh, the roles and purposes of, of the American way of life uh, is made uh, available to as many people as possible. I mean, freedom uh, is, is actually something you have to work for. Uh, the United States has been blessed to have been given that mantle of responsibility, uh, certainly in, in the 20th century and in the first part of the 21st century. And I hope that as we come, go through these difficult times that we, we see people who will emerge and step forward and volunteer to uh, serve in elected office and in military office and in service to the country that can get us back on the, uh, on the right track to where I think our rightful place is in the 21st century. Yeah, you know, my 16-year-old is a World War II buff. Uh, he thinks of nothing else but World War II. Every, every walk we take is a World War II walk. He, he, I think he'll be teaching history and he'll be teaching World War II. Uh, you know, I think if somebody said, you know, if you could relive your life in a certain period of time, which one, what would you choose to do? And um, I think... If I'd been born 20 years earlier, I think that's the period I would have liked to have lived my life in, even though it was very tough. I mean, it was, you know, it would not have been World War I, but, but just the, the images of World War II and, and just what, how, how that happened uh, on, a, on a global scale is just, just amazing. So you would have liked to live through that? I think, it, you know, as I look at all the, the pictures today and the, the books that I read and everything else, I thought, you know, life was pretty simple then. There's either good guys here and bad guys there, and <laughs> there weren't too many subtleties, right? General Jones, thank you so much for being my guest on When It Mattered and, and for this inspiring and absolutely amazing conversation. Chetra, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. and. Uh, I've always enjoyed our, our conversations, and this one is no different. Thank you. James Jones is a retired four-star general who, during his distinguished four-decade military career, served as Commandant of the Marine Corps, Commander United States European Command, and Supreme Allied Commander Europe.
After retiring from the Marine Corps in 2007, Jones served as chairman of the Congressional Independent Commission on the Security Forces of Iraq, later a special envoy for Middle East security and President Barack Obama's national security advisor. Jones now leads his own global strategic advisory firm, Jones Group International, based here in the Washington, D.C. area. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.